0: Welcome to Norwegian Spitfire Foundation. This is NSF Talks.
1: Hello uh, once again and welcome to NSF Talks. Uh, NSF Talks is a podcast series aiming to dive deeper than ever before into the complexity of Norwegian Spitfire Foundation, our mission and the various of people that are involved in helping us achieve our goals and that is to acquire, restore, operate and maintain Spitfires. So we have a very important podcast today and we have a very special guest for you guys. We're talking to none other than NSF founder and chairman Lars Ness. Uh, Lars was born in the city of Levanger in Norway, uh, but can now be found just north of Oslo airport in Moda. He has a lifelong passion for aviation and started early on flying gliders and took his commercial pilot's license in the United States in the 1980s. In 1999, he started flying Warbirds for Scandinavian historic flight and is widely known for his legendary P 51 Mustang displays. He's also flown many displays in the A 26 Invader and the Spitfire. He also enjoys flying his own uh, Booker Jungmann when he's not flying for SIS or chasing clouds in a Warbird. So, uh, welcome, Lars.
0: Thank you very much
1: we we uh, have to uh, just get right on it and address uh, a very important event that happened just uh, last Wednesday Uh, this was uh, a monumental landmark for NSF and our core mission Uh, so could you just talk us through what happened on Wednesday and and what this means for NSF and how all this came to be
0: Right. I'll, um, I'll have to, um, go back a little bit in time, I think, and, uh, and, uh, give you a, a little bit of background. Um, as, uh, uh many will know already, we, um, <clears throat> found the remains of, uh, uh, a Norwegian wartime Spitfire in, uh, the Netherlands in 2018, um, with, uh, the help of historian Kato Gunnfeldt, uh, Uh, I won't go too deeply into the finding of of the Spitfire um, or the remains of it. Uh, We can probably cover that perhaps later on, but uh, uh, this gave uh, Norway uh, a unique opportunity to uh, uh, restore to flying condition and bring back home to Norway um, a Spitfire with Norwegian wartime history. This particular aircraft was... uh, Delivered brand new from the factory uh, to a Norwegian 331 Squadron uh, on the 24th of July. Uh, they uh, both the Norwegian squadrons were at the time stationed at Tangmere in southern England in preparation for the invasion. And actually, this at this point in time, the invasion had already happened, but they were still stationed in the south of England and they moved around quite a bit. So, so um, they were at um, Bognor Regis, Tangmere, Huntington, Ford, uh, possibly other airfields as well. Um, uh, Like I said, this uh, this aircraft was delivered uh, as one of brand new airplanes to both the Norwegian squadrons on the 24th and 25th of July 1944. Um, It flew with the 331 squadron with the squadron code letters F and F uh, initially. uh, up until the 29th of December 1944, where it did an emergency landing in a field uh, near Tubergen in uh, the Netherlands. Um, this was um, uh, just after its pilot, Carl Jakob uh shot down a uh, focke 190 D9 and uh, uh, had a collision with his wingman where his wingman came from above and took his propeller blades off. Uh, And of course that forced him to either bail out or uh, do uh, an emergency landing. Um, He um, couldn't get the canopy open, so he had to choose the latter and uh, ended up in a field. Uh, He was uh, unharmed. Uh, The aircraft was uh, more or less intact and this was the start of a 79 days flee through occupied German occupied Netherlands back to his squadron and as far as we know it's the at least in time it's the longest um flee through German occupied territory by any uh, allied pilot um and of course this uh, this happened during the Ardennes offensive. Um, the motivation for the Germans to guard this airplane was probably not too high. They were busy uh, fighting most of the most of them, I would imagine. And uh, it was also, like I said earlier, the 29th of December. It was midwinter. It was almost New Year's Eve, and it was snowing. So. Um, um, uh, We don't know this for a fact, but probably they uh, took the weapons. That was standard procedure and possibly the engine. That was also more or less standard procedure uh, from the wreckage. And, uh, And then it was left unguarded more or less for a considerable time. We know that the tank cover, amongst other things, well, that's one of the parts of the airplane that we have. And uh, a good thing about tank covers is that um, uh, the serial no- the military serial number on, on on the airplanes, are stamped on it. So there's no question of where that comes from. But that was that was taken by the nearby farm farm and used as a doghouse. Um, uh, but following up uh, on that. Um, Parts were recovered from a a local collector uh, in 2018. Uh, And that is um, um, a unique opportunity to bring this aircraft back in the air and back to Norway. Uh, It's uh, on the British Civilian Aircraft Register, uh, and it's with the Aircraft Restoration Company at Duxford for the moment. Back to the two Norwegian fighter squadrons and also the the two other squadrons that Norway had, the maritime squadrons, 330 and 333 squadron, uh, who also flew mosquitoes. Um, um, Their story uh, hasn't been told properly and they have never gotten um, the honor and the attention that they deserve because... uh, it all happened abroad. Norway was occupied by the Germans. And of course, what happened here um, tends to be the focus point. What happened abroad uh, wasn't that interesting really for most people. Um, so uh, the Norwegian merchant fleet with the sailors and the Norwegian airmen suffered a bit of the same faith when they came back to Norway. Uh, they uh, Their history was never really told properly. Uh, they never got the recognition that they deserved for uh, their uh, efforts and sacrifices. Um, and uh, our main mission I would say in NSF is to, to try and put that right with um, a flying Spitfire. Um, and uh, you introduced this whole uh, long monologue <laughs> <that> I'm about <laughs> to embark on uh, by talking about last Wednesday, Wednesday the 16th of June um, the Norwegian government uh, um, they uh, funded the project with 4 million Norwegian kroners Um, 4 million Norwegian kroners is a lot of money, it's not enough to rebuild the whole airplane, that will cost us about 30 million Norwegian kroners but the recognition and uh, the Start-up point that this allows us to embark on is uh, is really really important, uh, especially the recognition by the official Norway, um, and uh, this makes us uh, pretty sure that the project will be uh, completed. If we were only to rely on private sponsors, um, we first of all we I think we would have struggled to get all that money um and second of all uh it would have been uh the whole project would have been a bit fragile when it comes to completion so uh so this is a, a, an enormous leap in the right direction with regards to restoring this airplane back to flying condition
1: right so uh this happened uh you know officially on on wednesday last week yes so so what went on uh specifically uh at cellar uh, what happened
0: um well uh, the ministerial minister of of um, uh cultural heritage in norway were supposed to be there he was tied up with something else so we had to send someone else uh, but we had five politicians um, members of parliament uh present at Scheller, uh, together with um, the board of directors and uh, a few other key personnel in NSF um, for uh, a pretty short, compact event where they, um, they gave us uh, the funding officially. And um, of course, we have to make the most of uh, a situation like this with the media, etc., Something else was going on. There was a big uh, uh, turmoil with the <laughs> with the local Oslo um, uh, city council. So media, most of media, was unfortunately tied up with that. Um, uh, so we we didn't really get the media coverage that we hoped for. But um, uh, the event was very good. Um, uh, the politicians were uh, taken, um, well care of, uh, and welcomed with, uh, I think we pulled out just about everything we have of old airplanes at Scheller and parked it around our, our little, uh, headquarters hut and, uh, and, uh, made the most of it. So, uh, they were really impressed with, uh, with, um, um, the sort of the atmosphere that we managed to create and uh, and uh, of course it's uh, it's another fight going on as well uh with Scheller airport um which is um uh, in, da- in danger of being closed altogether and this is uh, Norway's oldest airport and in fact one of one of the world's oldest airports that that have been in continuous use as an airport think since 1912 so it's um so that's uh that's also important for us to show the politicians what we actually do there um so this official event uh, was uh, when we actually got the funding from the Norwegian government
1: right so what you said something about it but what happens next to uh, pl258 in in the you know short future uh, ahead
0: Uh, we uh, are starting the rebuild of the fuselage Um, this uh, amount is almost enough to complete it Uh, so we've already ordered uh, uh, a slot in aircraft restoration companies fuselage jig Um, so they're um, probably already started you know uh, uh, reproducing the parts that will go into the jig, uh, uh, which will complete the the fuselage. Uh, the building process will take a little less than a year, probably. Um, so about this time next year, we should have a more or less a complete fuselage to show, and um, and we hope that we'll be able to bring it to Norway to to um, promote the project with something really. Um, uh physical you know to show for it
1: right right so very interesting days days ahead when it comes to uh the rebuild of pl258 and and norwegian speedfire foundation so uh but it's been it's now 2021 it's been uh nsf have been operating or you know uh existing for for some time but um I'm sure we're going to circle a little bit back to that later on. Um, but I was wondering, um, could you talk us through uh, your early years? Because you, you got involved in aviation uh, quite early, I'm sure, like most of us. So uh, just, to, just to start off and, and then circle back to PL258 in the end, uh, how did you get involved in, in uh, aviation?
0: Uh well, I think, um, I think it was uh, inevitable, really, because my, well, my father wanted to be a pilot, he, but his eyesight wasn't good enough. So he ended up being a dentist, but he got his private pilot's license and was very active in the local flying club. And this, is, uh, this was a time uh, when I was uh, just a small kid. I think he got his license in 1967, which was, uh, or 66 maybe uh, anyhow uh, I was only two one or two years old when that happened and uh, and uh, I've been told that my first um, flight was on my mother's lap in in the back of a piper cub uh, and I was one and a half years old so so um, I suppose it was more or less inevitable to uh, to end up with a keen interest in
1: aviation Right. Um, so, so, what happened next for you in terms of aviation? Because I, I know you, uh, quite young, you, you left for the States. Um, so, so uh, what happened between uh, that time and, and going all the way to the, to the States to, to start flying?
0: Well, I've, uh, like most. Young kids, you know, interested in airplanes. I I read everything I could get across uh, about airplanes, all kinds of airplanes, really. Uh, I built Airfix models, uh, and of course, um, the hot models to build at that time were the World War II, particularly the fighters. So um, I was at a very early age made uh, very much aware of Spitfires and Messerschmitts and. And Mustangs and and such, uh, and I thought they were absolutely stunning and beautiful. Um, uh, so uh, my interest, quite early, took a, di- a direction towards World War II uh, aviation. Um, as you said, I um, uh, I went to America uh, for my uh, pilot's uh, education. Before that, I started flying a little bit of powered airplanes, but but in particular, gliders as well as, of course, radio-controlled aeropl- airplanes as well. So I did everything I could in, in the direction of aviation, airplanes, and flying. Um, and in 1986, I left for um, the U.S. to get my commercial pilot's education. I applied for the Air Force. They didn't want me, so I had to take the other path. Um, I spent about three years in in America, in the United States of America. Uh, The education itself took about a year. And then I spent some time flying as an instructor, as well as flying uh, cargo flights uh, and a bit of commuter flying uh, with with small twin-engine airplanes. Um, And after that, I went on to do uh, crop testing um, and... um, uh, did two seasons of, of crop testing, uh, very intense flying. Um, for me as a pilot, that that was probably what really made me into a, a proper pilot. Uh, flying very heavily loaded airplanes. Uh, they were all tail draggers, uh, tailwheel airplanes, uh, with, with the challenge uh, that that involves. Uh, big piston engines, radial engines on some of them. And um, everything happened, of course, uh, uh, below 50 feet. We were hardly ever above 30 feet, actually, um, of altitude. And uh, and some of the flying was also formation flying. So without really thinking about it, uh, I probably got a lot of uh, what is, desired in a warbird what we call a warbird pilot these days tailwheel low level big piston engines and then I, i've always been quite keen on doing aerobatics so uh, every chance i had to when i got uh, my hands on an aerobatic airplane uh, i would go out and and, and do that um, and my last job in america was uh, as an uh, aerobatic instructor in uh, at Van Nuys, just outside of uh, Los Angeles, <clears throat> and uh, so with aerobatics uh, and uh, the aforementioned qualities, you know, I, ha- I had a lot of the background that first of all you would get uh, uh, flying fighters in the Air Force as well. So um, uh, so uh, when I uh, eventually went back to Europe and Norway um i've uh, i had acquired you know um, um, some skills that were in demand with um, warbird operators
1: yes um uh, talking about the civilian um and or the commercial part um what did you first get yourself involved with when you came back to norway flying uh commercial
0: um i um i uh, had because i spent 3 years in america i had uh, enough flying hours to qualify um as a captain on uh, smaller oper- for smaller operators so in fact i had a couple of jobs to choose from um i was offered a job flying a, a business jet in denmark uh, and i was uh, at, at about the same time i got a job offer Uh, flying ambulance with the beach kingers in northern norway and i chose the latter because it first of all it was in norway and my uh, my goal was to get a job with one of the three larger um, airlines in norway it was at that time scandinavian airlines it was uh, brathens and uh, videre and um uh, as my goal was to get a job with one of those, um, I thought it would be first of all it it would probably be a, a better experience uh, to fly in northern Norway on the on the short field network of airports uh, rather than flying around in Europe in a business jet. Second of all, it was in Norway, so I would be you know sort of um, closer to my final goal. So that's what I started doing. I flew almost four years, uh Beach Kingers in northern Norway doing uh, air ambulance flights.
1: Right. So but at the same time, uh I, I presume you got yourself involved with uh Scandinavian Historic Flight and Under Satter. So could you talk a little bit about that and how you got involved then uh because I, I, I know that you um you started flying as a co-pilot on the invader and so so what was that like because you, you you weren't uh you you weren't like 40 or 45 years old you were you were quite young
0: yes i was um i was still 23 years old when i started flying the a26 invader uh and um uh, a bit of a coincidence really uh i i knew that there was uh i knew about scandinavian historic flights and uh they were uh, at Cheddar Airport um, doing an annual inspection on the Mustang uh, in one of the hangars there, and I just simply walked over and uh, and uh, said hello, and uh, uh, and I hang, hung around and was given a rag to polish the wheels on the Mustang, and uh, started talking, you know, particularly with Anders Säter, and uh, and uh, I suppose he. Um, he, uh, sort of took an interest in my background and, uh, uh, a couple of days later, he called me and, uh, asked if I would like to fly as a co-pilot on the A26 Invader. And of course he couldn't say no to an offer like that. So, uh, off we went. Um, and this was, um, when I met him first at Scheller, this was in the spring. So it, we were just coming up to the air show season and, um, uh, Went off to all kinds of places, you know, at air shows in in the right seat of the A26 Invader, and this was before I got my job flying with the air ambulance. I was still working with uh, working on converting my uh, American licenses to Norwegian, so I had uh, the time to do it, and uh, and uh, it was just absolutely fantastic. First of all, it's a fantastic aeroplane, but getting into the sort of the warbird community. Uh, at an early age like that was uh, just uh, uh, a dream uh, come true, really.
1: And, and I guess in some ways quite lucky, but uh, like you say, you, you, I'm sure you had the credentials that he, he took an interest in. Um, do you remember your, your first flight, you know, flying the Invader as a, as a captain?
0: Uh, I remember flying it as a captain very well. Um, it was, uh, we were going at an air to an air show. Uh, the air show was, uh, in, uh, uh, at Texel in Holland. Um, and, uh, I had, uh, this was just a couple of months, maybe not even that. I can't remember exactly the timing here, but, uh, it was, it wasn't long after I started flying for Scandinavian historic flight that, uh, um, that uh, we had an American, Vernon Thorpe, he came over from America, uh, as it was an American registered airplane, it was all American licenses that counted, you know, and everything. So so he gave me a type rating on the A-26 that you, you would have to have uh, to fly it as a captain. and um, And then uh, just days after that, if it, if, it, if it was even that, you know, maybe it was the day after, I think it was very close. Uh, we set off uh, for this air show in Holland. Um, and I was still 23 years old flying as a captain on this A26 Invader. Um, and, you know, it, it all went from one <laughs> fantastic uh, event to, 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 to the next uh, for me personally. So um so it was it was a great time it really was
1: yeah. when did you first uh, start flying the the mustang the old crow uh,
0: I first flew old crow um, I, i'm I think it was the year after in 1990 the fall of 1990 uh, we were at an air show in in uh, Jönköping in Sweden. Uh, and I was flying the invader and Anders Sater was flying the Mustang, uh, and then a lovely, calm, nice afternoon. Um, I was offered, you know, I was asked, uh, would you like to have a go in the Mustang? And, uh, I had started it and taxied it and dreamed about flying it, you know, <laughs> for a long, long time. And, uh, uh of course, I read all the books. I, I knew them by heart. Uh, so um uh, i was ready and um and uh, off i went um and it's a single seat well it's 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 got a passenger seat in the back but we don't use that for instruction um so uh i was on my own uh, on the first flight uh, after of course a thorough brief and uh, uh and everything but uh that was that was also absolutely amazing um yeah
1: because you've you've been displaying it uh, basically all over europe
0: yes i have um uh, it's uh it's from uh, southern france poland um lot in the u k uh so all over europe as you say and uh, and it's it's uh, now it's the air the aeroplane individual uh that i have flown for the longest um so it's uh, it's it's uh, 31 years since I flew it the first time.
1: Right. Uh, I I remember that me and men me and Eric, uh we we spoke uh, a little bit about these uh, now legendary air shows that uh, got to the moon in the 80s, uh, but basically the, the 1990s. And I was just wondering if if you have any any anything to share or memories from from those events. Um, because, because those events to us were uh nowadays they are uh you look upon them as uh, i don't know uh something of, of 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 a legend so do you remember anything from those events
0: oh yes um in uh in nineteen uh, i think it was nineteen eighty nine the first the big air show at Garden, wasn't it uh um i flew the a26 on the uh, there were three there were three really big air shows at gardemont uh i remember them very well i flew the a26 uh, on the two first ones and the biggest one was the third one um, where they had uh, lots of uh, international uh, military aerobatic teams and stuff and i flew the mustang on that one Uh, another one that I remember very well was sherwick uh, in 1989, uh, and uh, and in conjunction with that, uh, I first met uh, Mark Hanna. He came with uh, their Spitfire uh, and Corsair. Rolf Meehn flew the Corsair, and uh, Mark flew the Spitfire, and I flew the A26, and uh, and uh, that was a very nice air show with the Red Arrows, and also the the British Mosquito that unfortunately crashed later on uh, was there. So um, so that was that was also a big event that I remember very well.
1: Was that the 95 uh, event, or or was that uh, or was the it Shevi- 94? The Chevik one was uh, in 1989.
0: Actually. 1989.
1: So, uh, yeah.
0: Um, and then there was one in nineteen at Gardermoen in nineteen ninety.
1: Uh, that was uh, the classic, uh, air, uh, the yes. classic air warbird show or something they called it. Yeah.
0: yeah. Historic air show. Historic
1: air show. It was called. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Uh, yes. And then you had one yes. in ninety two.
0: One in nineteen ninety two, uh, and another one in nineteen uh, ninety four or five. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, yeah. yes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah right yes, uh, you you spoke a little bit about it uh, uh, because you know you know these days with uh, the Aviation Echo doing uh, such a huge uh, article on on Mark Hanna so what well, what is it what, what was it like being you know part of the airshow display in the nineteen nineties alongside uh, Ray and Mark Hanna?
0: It was absolutely fantastic you know they they immediately became became two people that I looked uh up upon you know uh immensely they they were uh, they were the benchmark of of everything really uh not just the flying but uh, the the philosophy the way of handling you know the airplanes the way of handling the history uh, uh, mark Hanna. not not too many people know but he was uh he was uh A very very accomplished historian. Um, He um, he appreciated, you know, the humans, the human efforts behind uh, both the aircraft and the fighting and and and, uh, the wartime events. So he um, uh, he he had a very mature uh, attitude towards. towards it all and uh, the way they flew the way they painted the airplanes the way they dressed the way everything they did you know became um, it had a, a certain flare and aura around it so uh, so that was absolutely magnificent to be to be a part of all that and uh, and we f- we flew with them all the time all over Europe and uh, and the UK they came to Scandinavia mark, uh, uh came to norway quite often um and so we became not just you know somebody that you met occasionally but but actually very close friends and ray Hanna gave me my first uh, uh, british display authorization i didn't even even know what it was uh, but i was supposed to do a a display in the a26 for a, a an event at duxford and uh and uh he came over and said that you need you need a, a display authorization to to be able to do this uh if you do a practice display i'll give you one so so uh, as, sim- as simple as that uh, so we, so i did did a practice display and he handed over my my uh, display authorization and uh and in the years following that you know he also renewed it uh for me uh, everything happened this was before Mobile phones times so uh, to renew the display authorization, I I wrote him a letter and got a very nice letter back with uh, some some hints and tips uh, um, and uh, I still have those letters. It's uh, it's it's a bit of history in itself, really.
1: Right, right. So uh, we're moving onwards now from. Movie uh, Ray Hanna sadly passed away in 2005, and and then Scandinavian historic flight. I think their last uh, display at Duxford, at least, was 2008 or nine, and then uh, and then for, for me at least, I I was surfing Facebook. Uh, I don't know when it was, maybe 2009 or 2010, and then I stumbled upon something called Norwegian Spitfire Foundation. So. So something has been going on, you know, uh, in those years. So what was the, uh, you did talk a little bit about it and why we're doing this and and, and stuff like that. But, you know, how did uh, you go from uh, Scandinavian Historic Flight and then your founding and, and being chairman of Norwegian Speedfire Foundation? And uh, what, uh, what's been going on, th- you know, through those years? Uh, could you talk a little bit about that?
0: Well, the, the start of it all uh, happened as many other things, I would guess, uh, significant things in the world, uh, happened over uh, a cup of coffee. <laughs> it was, uh, S es- and me, um, having, uh, seen that, uh, or experienced that, you know, the Scandinavian historic flight Mustang, uh, disappeared out of the country. It went to Sweden. Um, and, uh, we, we sat down and had a cup of coffee and, uh. We more or less just agreed that, you know, we what we really should should have in Norway with the history of this aircraft in, in the Norwegian Air Force, we sh- really should have a flying Norwegian Spitfire. And um, uh, probably a bit immaturely at the time, we were both, of course, very much aware of the history and everything. But uh, we probably had more focus on just getting an airplane uh, at the time rather than Uh, the greater cause that we that we have focused more and more on in in recent times Uh, but that was the start of the Norwegian Spitfire Foundation I think we made up the name there and then and it was it was a little later than you indicated it was in the fall of 2012 right so um, it's 10 it's 10 years next year Um, and then we we it 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 ended up being uh, I think we had quite a few cups, cups of coffee, because we, we, um, we ended up, you know, pretty much drawing up uh, much of the philosophy that we still um, have in Scandin- in um, in the Norwegian Spitfire Foundation, we decided, you know, we, if we're going to succeed, we need to to uh, try and uh, look through, you know, the whole vintage aircraft community in Norway and recruit the best people that we can find. Um, there is, There has been a history of, of, uh, of a little, you know, um, uh, how should I put it? Uh, the, the previous organizations in historic aviation in Norway have been a bit exclusive. So, uh, so, but we want it to be inclusive. Uh, so we, we very early, you know, agreed that we won't exclude anyone, you know, anyone who wants to come and, and, and take part of this is more than welcome to. And, uh, and, uh, everyone, everybody we asked, you know, to come aboard, uh, as a, uh, from the starting point, uh, said yes. And, uh, all of them, except one uh, who for f- f- family reasons had to pull out, he just didn't have the time to, to devote to this, um, uh, are still on board. And uh, you're one of them, Thurider. Uh I think we talked to you quite early, uh, early on. Um, and uh, the board, the, the members of the board are still the same as we
1: yes cuz i believe that was back in 2013 that i was uh, i think i was approached i don't remember how um and then i brought some of my people or people i just came to know uh into the fold um uh, but then it, it, well it, it, we're, we're going on on 10 years now and 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 then we we have been operating uh, other aircraft like like the mustang and uh, the Norsemen and and the Harvard and so on. So could could you say something about the the idea behind operating other aircraft and and why?
0: Well, um, in the in the early you know times, uh, whenever we mentioned you know Norwegian Spitfire Foundation, we were more or less met with you know who are you? What are you up to? uh and and this of course you know we we had just started up we weren't known for anything we we um uh, uh, so we had to do something to sort of put ourselves on the map in historic aviation um the norwegian harvard uh, LN tex um one of the first if not the first so-called war bird came to norway in 1979. Um, So it's a a very well-known aircraft in Norway. Um, The owners, uh, we thought at the time, uh, were in between sort of operators. Um, So uh, we decided that perhaps it would be a good idea uh, to ask them and, and see if they would let us operate their Harvard. Um uh, we were again met with, you know, uh, the same sort of questions. Who are you and, and uh, why should we do that? Uh, so we had a meeting with them, um, uh, Eskil and uh, Gunnar arne uh, And I think Per, uh, our secretary, uh, had a meeting with them at Hernefos where they live. And we managed to come across as more or less serious people. So we were given the the responsibility of operating Ellen Tex. Um, And that sort of started to put us on the map um, in historic aviation. Um, The old Scandinavian historic flight Mustang, Old Crow, uh, were sold to uh, an Englishman, Sean Patrick. Um, This was, I believe, also in 2013. Uh, 2012 2013 and and also he uh, were in lack of an operator Um, at that point I had gotten to know him because I had started to fly with him as an instructor to fly his Mustang Um, so when he needed someone to operate his his Mustang I told him you know why don't you let us do it and uh, uh, and, uh, again, he was, uh, as, as, as the, uh, Harvard owners, he was a little skeptical. He didn't know us as an organization. He knew Yon me as an individual. Um, but he, um, he, uh, he went on doing that. And I think, I think he's glad he's glad he did. We've had a very good relationship with, uh, Sean Patrick and, uh, he's now just recently sold his Mustang. It's still on our operating permit in the UK, um, but uh, he himself is is out of the picture. So, uh, so um, how many years is it? Uh, I think we took over the operation of the airplane in 2014, so it's uh, it's almost seven years now uh, in operating the Mustang in yep. the UK. He later on bought a Sea Fury that we also operated. Unfortunately, that Sea Fury had an um, a forced landing following an engine failure last fall so it's uh, it's not flying anymore um, but uh, at one point we operated both the mustang and the sea fury in the
1: uk and then you have the norseman uh, as well yes
0: that's also a very significant milestone for uh, for nsf because um, um and this is also back uh, in time. Um, I think it was 2013, uh, um, the director of the, uh, Norwegian Aviation Museum in Bode. Uh, I knew him a little bit and, uh, he, he gave me a, he, he phoned me and asked, you know, do you think it's a good idea to, to, uh, buy a beaver? Because the museum um uh i think the museum would do good in having a, a flying aeroplane as well just to atta- attract some more interest to the museum uh and i thought you know first of all i thought that that uh, his idea of also having f- uh, flying aeroplanes uh, as well as the static ones in the museum was um uh, uh, pretty pioneering uh, it's uh, traditionally been uh, quite a, 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 a tight wall between the static museum community and the, and the historic flying community uh, so um, he was um, uh, he was uh, very pioneering in his thoughts I thought but um, just coincidence, coincidentally I, I had just learned that a Norseman was for sale in Sweden and it wasn't just any Norseman. It was one of the first Norsemen delivered to the Royal Norwegian air force in 19 May, 1944, 45. It was after the war, but it was before they moved back to Norway after the war. So this was one of the first eight aircraft, uh, air, eight transport aircraft in the history of the Royal Norwegian air force. Um, it went, came back to Norway and uh, spent uh, a career in the air force. After that, it was sold to a civilian operator called uh, Tui Solberg. He operated a, a small airline called Solberg Aviation. Flew all kinds of things, you know, uh, taxi flying with people and and freight. I think this aircraft was used to fly, to fly the, the newspaper Blooded to from between Oslo and Bergen. Um, he also set up a, a, a part of his company in Sweden. Uh, and that's why this, this particular airplane eventually ended up in Sweden. And it flew uh, on floats up in the, mid, the middle of Sweden uh, on lakes. I think it was the company at, at least at some point was called Plansflug. And then it went on uh, to several private hands in, in Sweden. Uh, and Coincidentally, when... Arling Kjærnes uh, called me uh, this aircraft w- was for sale so I told him you know uh, Arling I have a better idea and I told him about the Norseman and um, with the smallest possible margin uh, the board of directors for the museum uh, went for it um, uh, and it was it was I think Arling worked quite hard to to get uh, Uh, to get this approved by the board of directors uh, with the museum, because uh, a lot of them were skeptical and thought that, you know, this is just going to cost a lot of money and, and, uh, and the exposure uh, for the museum is very limited uh, so forth and so on. But uh, uh, I think we have managed to prove, prove them wrong. And, uh, and now it's, uh, it's a pretty much uh, hundred percent consensus that it, that it was a good idea to get this airplane. And it has brought the museum, you know, a lot of goodwill and publicity. Mm. Uh, I think they have about 40,000 visitors a year in the museum. And uh, in one active season, we displayed the aircraft for about 200,000 uh, people. And uh, when they saw those numbers, they at first they didn't believe it was true, you know. So it's... Uh, it's um, I, th- I think we can safely say that it has been a success, both for the museum and, of course, um, the uh, the privilege of being chosen as the operator of of, uh, of a I would call a significant historic um, uh, constellation uh, that the Norseman represents uh, is um, is very honouring for us for us in NSF.
1: I, I agree. I I think it's a a brilliant idea to 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 have something flying uh, uh, it's it's a it's a brilliant idea um, speaking of the museum um there's also the engine um the Rolls Royce merlin engine um which now has a connection to p l two five eight the um,
0: yes yeah. absolutely the the defense museum uh, uh, of Norway, uh, of course, they have a lot of stuff. They have two Spitfires, complete Spitfires, but they also have uh, a Spitfire engine, a Merlin 66. Uh, as soon as we uh, found the remains of PL258 and um, and, uh, and and had the project, you know, sort of registered and going, uh, I approached uh, uh, again Erling Sarnes, now being the director of the. Armed Forces Museum uh uh and asked you know uh, I know you have an engine in Buda can we have it for our project and uh, and uh, he immediately said you know uh, yes uh, we uh, uh, we can uh, and of course you know there was a bit of red tape to be covered but uh, but um, we managed and uh, we haven't been given the engine in fact we have been offered to 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 have ownership of the engine but it's still owned by the museum uh, i have a, a little hope that the museum also will finance the overhaul of it uh, but we'll see about that but it's still owned by the museum uh, and uh but it's it's uh, it's placed uh, for our disposal uh um and uh, Disposal is the wrong word uh, <laughs> for our use, and uh, uh, and of course it needs a complete overhaul to be airworthy. Uh, and if at some point the airplane PL258 won't fly anymore, the, the the engine goes back to the museum. Of course, it will never leave the airframe, but uh, but it's the museum's engine. Uh, the significance is uh, that the. Uh, the defense, the Museum of Defense, is on board the project as one of the main sponsors uh, and supporters. Uh, that is very important to us. Uh, like I said initially, you know, the significance of of the moral support is is uh, often just as important as, as the the financial value uh, of the actual support.
1: Right, and. Uh, it- Going back a little bit to how NSF came to be, and then you know, changing perhaps just a little bit of a approach, and and involving uh, maybe these these uh, veteran pilots, or or the, the, they're all just passed away now, but you know, um, giving them honor and and uh, and. Uh, Talking their names and uh, and and things like that. Uh, we we did. I I spoke to Knut and Erik about this, and I think what stuck out to both of them was the the Rolf Arneberg event of 2017. So, just a few words on that before we move on to my favorite question. Uh, what was it like um, hmm. arranging uh, th- that 2017 event with the Rolf Arneberg as the main theme? It
0: all came about, uh, around the, uh, the Jubilee air show at Sula airport. Um, they were funded by, uh, by Avinur, uh, and also a bit, little bit by the air force, I believe. Um, and, uh, and they had a, a, a good budget. So, uh, uh, we were asked, you know, if we could, if we could, uh, come to that air show with uh, a Spitfire, um, we had already uh, the Norwegian Spitfire Foundation had already uh, rented uh, or leased uh, a UK Spitfire RR232 owned by Martin Phillips uh, the the previous year uh, on a different event event and then the idea came uh, came up you know why don't we paint it in uh, Norwegian colours and uh, there are no Spitfire more Norwegian than Rolf Varnærbørg's Spitfire. Uh, um, he um, he used his own aircraft as sort of a test su- subject in the fall of 1944. I think it was following the establishment of the official establishment of the Royal Norwegian Air Force, um, and he wanted his his goal was to be allowed to paint paint up all the Norwegian uh, Spitfires, both squadrons, in the pre-war uh, Norwegian markings. Um, they had the Norwegian flags across their wings um, and on the rudder. Uh, Rolf Arneberg painted up his own aircraft uh, to, to show, you know, how it would look, and applied uh, to uh, keep it, and also paint up all the other uh, Norwegian Spitfires in the same paint scheme. Um, the air ministry said no. Uh, the, the reason was because they they may be mistaken for being German. I think it was more about probably uh, still being part of very much part of the Royal Air Force. <laughs> but uh, uh, the British being polite, you know, they um, they gave a, a more operational reason for uh, declining his request. So um, this paint scheme only lasted for what we think was about. 10 days, maybe two weeks at the most. Uh, and then he had to repaint his aircraft back into the standard Royal Air Force scheme. But uh, very good pictures were taken of his airplane. And and we thought, you know, what better way of honoring both him, Rolf Arneberg, but also all the Norwegian Spitfire pilots uh, uh, by repainting a Spitfire in his colors, uh, uh, the wing commander of both squadrons. So, uh, so we did. Uh, it was uh, quite expensive um, and we were only allowed to do it in a wash-off paint, a paint that could be washed off afterwards. And it was in fact washed off as soon as we more or less uh, set foot on, on uh, British soil again. Um, even though it was a, a very colourful and nice paint scheme and actually the owner of the aeroplane liked it quite well, but this aeroplane is is a working airplane with Volpi Flight Academy. So, um, and because of that, obviously they wanted it back into uh, Royal Air Force colours. But we managed to do it. We um, we got the airplane repainted. It looked marvelous, and uh, we did a, a three-week tour uh, of air shows, starting off uh, by flying over um, Rolf Arneberg's crash site just outside of Groningen. In Holland, where he uh, where he he died in February 1945, um, with uh, Dutch national TV on site. So uh, so that was the sort of first uh, very significant thing we did with it. And then we went on to uh, an air show in Holland. Uh, we went to Sweden. Uh, we went to Stavanger, Sula, as I mentioned, for the big air show there. And then we had a, a Rolf Arneberg event at uh, Scheller, with uh, talks from uh, from Carter uh, Günfeld, the historian, uh, as well as inviting uh, Rolf Arneberg's closest relatives, living relatives, uh, his nephew and his family, to Scheller. Uh, and this this was all quite emotional and uh, and uh, and a great 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 event, uh, very memorable uh, in many respects.
1: Right, yes, because we, we, I think we all remember that uh, year uh, specifically as an amazing year, but now we're looking forward also to some some very interesting years ahead with PL258. And one of those things that we, we didn't really mention, and now we're talking about these pilots, is that PL258 uh, were flown by many, many Norwegian pilots. Uh, isn't that so?
0: Yes it uh, as I mentioned initially it was it served with the squadron for about six months or almost and um, it was flown by we're not exactly sure about the number uh, and the reason for that is because it, it changed its squadron code letter uh, at some point and we're not exactly sure on the on the exact date. We think it was in the end of November where it went from the letter F, to the letter K for some reason. Uh, and we don't know the reason and we don't know the exact date, but we, we think it was flown by about 20 young Norwegian pilots coming from all over Norway. Um, it flew 81 uh, combat missions uh, and shot down with two different pilots, two German fighters, uh, both Focke-Wulf 190s. The first one was on the 6th of August, 1944, and the second one, just before the emergency landing on the twenty-ninth of December, nineteen forty-four. Um, and uh, uh, it's—I've um, said a little bit about it already. But uh, uh, the thought behind the Norwegian Spitfire Foundation, with Eskil and me being two pilots sitting there drinking coffee, you know, wanting to fly Spitfires, uh, it was probably at that point a bit sort of immature, uh, focusing more on the airplane and getting to fly the airplane, uh, as we have uh, um, started to dig into uh, the history, uh, a history that we, we were aware of it, but uh, not, pre- not uh, nearly to the extent that we should have been. Uh, and like most Norwegian people, uh, don't know too much about it. We were, we were made more and more aware of the history of the Norwegian pilots and, and the efforts and sacrifices they, they did during World War Two and, um, and the focus have shifted uh, quite significantly from focus on the airplane to being uh, focus on the history and the people, uh, which, of course, is, is the most important part of it. So uh, PL258 will be used. Uh, um, actively to convey the history of the of the Norwegian airmen, uh, not just the, the fighter pilots and the, and the fighter squadrons, but also the whole effort with the, the two other aforementioned squad Norwegian squadrons, um, uh, and particularly to the younger generation. Uh, and by high, having a flying aeroplane, of course we can we can fly it around the whole country. We can land at local airfields. Inviting uh, um, uh, school children, you know, to come out and, and see it and, and experience uh, the airplane flying, and uh, a guaranteed uh, way of getting uh, a young person to look up from it, from, from 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 their iPhone is okay. is to, to have a flying Spitfire. Um, yes. So I think I think it would be a very engaging and and uh, and a very effective. Um, tool to convey the history of the Norwegian Airman.
1: Good, and that is the key point because when I'm talking to these other guys uh, it, it, their memories is not uh, of a museum even though those serve a purpose as well it is the the sight and the sound and the flying that sort of uh, kicks off their interests uh, in historic aviation. I, I think that goes for basically all of us um, so, so this is this is very important, if you ask me.
0: Absolutely. Yes. Uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, yes. We are on we're heading we're heading on an hour now, so I'm going to finish off. Uh, we managed to circle back to PL258 like I, I set out to at least. So, uh, but there is one uh, last uh, question that I I uh, made a, a thing out of asking everyone, and that is your. Favorite mark of, of Spitfire and and why?
0: Well, it's hard not to divide that question into into two because uh, I'm uh, I'm uh, I'm not a historian, but I I'm historically interested, and of course you know um, uh, doing what we're doing with PL two five eight and the fact that the Norwegian squadrons uh, were operating. Uh, Spitfire Mark 9s uh, for almost, well, most of the war at least. And also post-war, uh, we had uh, Spitfire Mark 9s in Norway. Uh, so from a historical point of view, I'd say, I would have to say the Spitfire Mark 9. Uh, and that is uh, from me as a, as a Norwegian, uh, of course, and uh, in my capacity as, as uh, chairman of the Norwegian Spitfire Foundation. I'm I'm allowed to be slightly political, I think, when it comes <laughs> to this. <laughs> but but the, the the other part of uh, the other part of the answer would be uh, from me as a pilot, and uh, I haven't flown too many marks of Spitfire. I've flown the Mark Nine, both uh, single seat and and two seat uh, Mark Nines. Uh, I've flown the Mark Sixteen, uh, and I have flown the Mark Eleven, and uh, the Mark Eleven stands out as the, the most fantastic airplane that I've ever flown probably of all marks of, of or types of airplane not just Spitfires it is so light it didn't have any armament it didn't have any armor it didn't have uh, any unnecessary drag uh, uh, that a fighter would have to do like you know, have to have like a an armored windscreen and and so forth and so on. Guns in the leading edges of the wings. Uh, so it's a it's just a a very light, very slick and fast Spitfire. It's, it's built more. Um, it had a purpose, of course, carrying cameras and taking pictures. Uh, but it's um, it's uh, um, in the purpose of doing that. They had to build an airplane that could go faster and higher. To stay out of uh, out of reach from enemy fighters, um, and uh, and in doing that, they have created just the most perfect of airplanes. It's it's so light, so fast, uh, and and such a pleasure to fly. Right. So from a pilot's perspective, uh, I would have to say the Mark 11.
1: Okay, good. Uh, yes, so we're we've been talking for some time. Uh, I believe you have to do this uh, again sometime. Uh, there will be more NSF news uh, as we progress into to 2022, and there will be air shows again, and and PL258 hopefully will be taken back to, to Norway to uh, be on display uh, as it is. So... Uh, With that, uh, thank you Lars for taking your time to talk to NSF Talks. Um, Hopefully uh, people will have enjoyed this uh, conversation. Uh, And uh, from all of us to all of us basically, uh, uh, we really hope that PL258 will will fly again uh, soon.
0: Yes, absolutely. And uh, if I can, uh, just uh, at the very end, Say that it's um, it's a huge team effort. It's a lot of people involved, uh, a lot of enthusiasm, uh, interest, and not to speak of all the time that so many people uh, put into this is uh, and and being just being able to be a part of all that is humbling and and uh, and and very very satisfying.
1: And and just to add to that. Uh that this podcast is basically just to present everyone uh, making a huge effort because there's so many of us um, so so and that's 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 like some of the point with the podcast so hopefully i'll get more people to to talk to me in english i know some are uh, a bit hesitant to to talk in english for an hour but I'll I'll, I'll 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 try to get a few more people to talk about their their interests and and uh, being a part of nsf yeah so uh, so thank you
0: thank you very much
1: right. thank you yes uh, nsf talks uh, that's it for now uh, thank you and goodbye